Okay, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and we're starting at verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail, will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. We had covered in Matthew chapter 12 how when the unpardonable sin came upon that generation generation in Jerusalem, the policy of silence was then enacted. And that's why you see at the end of that chapter and starting into Matthew chapter 13, we saw that that's where the parables started. Before that, there were no parables. Jesus spoke plainly and openly. And after that, Jesus started speaking in parables to the extent that his disciples even said, what's going on? Why are you speaking in parables? And Jesus' reply was, because it's for you to understand and not for them to understand. And Jesus opens up something to Peter specifically. He singles out Peter here and he opens up something to Peter and he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And these keys may well relate back to a portion in Isaiah where there was a key holder. But in any case, he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the most profound opening that Peter had was the opening of the gospel. Let's look at, in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus had risen from the dead... Just prior to his ascension, after he had walked on earth, after risen, being risen from the dead for 40 days, he said in Luke chapter 1, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in, in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So look what he says. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. That's first. And then Samaria, and then to the remotest part of the earth. And then if you look in in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter starts the first sermon after they receive the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. So look what he says. He starts addressing the men of Judea and Jerusalem, specifically in Jerusalem, but in this district of Judea, because there were people there from throughout that land. 
and he starts preaching to them and he opens to them the gospel in this area. And then in, if, you, if you look down in verse, if that same chapter in verse 38, Peter said to them, so this is Luke 2.38, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter proclaims the gift of the Holy Spirit to come down upon the people of Jerusalem and Judea. That is the first thing that he did. He proclaimed that gift to be upon them, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The opening came with Jerusalem and Judea, just as Jesus said it would happen. Peter, through his witness, through his testimony, opened that up. And then after that, other preaching went out from the other disciples. And the Holy Spirit would hit people right there in Jerusalem and Judea through the preaching of others. Now look in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist goes and he starts preaching the word of God in Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So you see, Philip went down and began to speak the things of God to the people now in Samaria. Remember what Jesus said, both Jerusalem and Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. So Philip takes the message to Samaria. And it says that many people started to believe. And, and uh, um, look, at, look in, uh, in verse 12 of that same chapter, Acts chapter 8. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So you see, through Philip's preaching in Samaria... Now people were believing. Believing to such an extent that they were being baptized. But now in verse 14 of that same chapter. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply believed They had had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So this is interesting. So Philip comes down, Philip goes up to Samaria. He starts preaching the gospel. People believe to such an extent they're being baptized. But the Holy Spirit didn't hit them. Why? Because Peter had not yet opened the door for the Holy Spirit to come into that area. Jesus had proclaimed something very special upon the ministry of Peter. He says, Peter, then you better go and get this Holy Spirit opened up to them. And so they, the apostles send Peter, John accompanies him, and they go praying on the, over these people, and the Holy Spirit starts to hit them, just like the Holy Spirit had done upon the apostles, and then upon the people that the, pre- the apostles had preached to in Jerusalem and in Judea. So there was something special. Now, after this point, you never needed Peter again to bring forth the Holy Spirit upon the time when people believed. After this point, that was it. Peter had opened the door in Jerusalem and Judea, and it was open. Whatever he loosed on earth was loosed in heaven. Peter then opened the door in Samaria. Whatever was loosed in earth was loosed in heaven. Never again was Peter needed. Was Peter the only one who could open that door for the Holy Spirit? Now let's look in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, you have the conversion of Saul, or Paul. 
And Paul is called to be the minister to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to hear, to hear my name, I'm sorry, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This is God speaking. This is Jesus speaking in regard to Paul. He says, Paul is going to be to bear my name before the Gentiles. But Paul's ministry never opened up at this moment to the Gentiles. And if you look in in verse 22 of that same chapter, of Acts chapter 9, verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Paul's ministry at this point was exclusively to the Jews. Didn't yet open up. Now let's look in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is called upon by a vision to go and to speak to a man named Cornelius. Cornelius being a Gentile. Now the Word of God is going to open up to the Gentile world. And in Acts chapter 10, Jesus, through a vision, calls Peter. Why? Because Peter is the one who has to loose these things on earth so that they'd be loosed in heaven. He goes to the household of Cornelius. What was special about Cornelius? We've covered it before. Why Cornelius of all Gentiles? It says because Cornelius loved the Jewish nation. He used to give alms to the Jewish people. And he was one who feared God, but he loved the Jewish nation. The same sort of thing happened with the Roman centurion. Jesus didn't spend a whole lot of time ministering to Gentiles. In fact, to the Syrophoenician woman, he had very little to do with her. And finally, after her constant begging, he said, Okay, you can have some crumbs. Your daughter will be healed. But as soon as he heard that the Roman centurion had helped them build the synagogue, he said, I'm on my way to minister to his slave. I'm on my way to take care of him. As soon as he recognized that this Gentile had blessed the Jewish people, Jesus remembered the promise of his father to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And Jesus was on his way. Cornelius, of all Gentiles, why did the gospel first come to his home? He was a blesser of the Jewish nation, it says in Acts chapter 10. But then if we look down in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water. For, the, for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And they ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. So you see, now they were amazed because the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles. That doesn't amaze us anymore. To them, it was a big surprise. He had only hit Jews and then hit Samaritans and now hit Gentiles. Peter opened the door for this. Peter was not the minister of the gospel to the Gentiles, but he was the one who had to open the door. Whatever you bind on earth, Peter, will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And from this point on, Peter was never needed again. 
to open the door for the Holy Spirit to hit the Gentiles. Never again. And at this point, then the ministry starts to open from others to the Gentiles. Look in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And remember, Acts specifically tells us in in chapter 1 that it's written chronologically. So we can follow the chronological sequence in both Luke and Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the word of God had now opened to the Gentiles. Now, after Peter opened the door, the Word of God was open. And then it opened for Paul to the Gentiles. And it's not until Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were were Antioch in the church. Well, how did the church get to Antioch? We just read in Acts chapter 11 how these people started preaching the Word of God in Antioch. And the church rose up. The church was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was also called Niger, and Lasius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So you see, this is Saul, who, lay, who was later called Paul. This is the opening now of Paul. Paul never had to call on Peter anymore to have the Holy Spirit come down during his preaching. What Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 upon Peter was that Peter would have a special place in ministry. And once Peter opened the door, you didn't need someone to open it anymore. Peter opened it. It was opened in heaven. Never again was Peter needed for the Holy Spirit to come down upon the Gentiles because the door had been opened. Paul could well minister and have the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles. The door was now open in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and now to the Gentiles, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus' question to them in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 is, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Some say, think that you're John the Baptist. Some think that, you, that you're Elijah. Some think Jeremiah. Some think that you're another one of the prophets. You know, there were other people that thought other things about Jesus. And, but they were being kind. You know, because we, 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 we're told in Scriptures what, what the Pharisees were saying about him, that he was a blasphemer. Uh, uh, so they were, they were just being kind to Jesus. And then Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, Who do you say that I am? If you ask the world, what do they think of Jesus? Some will say, well, he was a prophet. Some will say, well, he was a great religious teacher. Others will say he was, he was just parroting the things that had come before him. There was nothing new in his ministry. You'll hear all sorts of things about Jesus. Some will say that he was, he was crazy and that he said that he was the only way. But then it comes right back to us. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Who do you say that He is? That's the real Word. And then there is a revelation that comes that can only come from the Father. And that's that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's take a step and see what it means for us to claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look in, in, uh, in Romans chapter, chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, reading from verse 9. Romans 10:9. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Look at the requirements for salvation. We must believe that Jesus is Lord. Must have that belief in our heart. And be willing, must be willing to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead. To believe that Jesus is Lord and willing to confess that. And also, willing to believe that God raised Him from the dead. If you don't believe in the resurrection, that's fine but you're not saved then. It's up to you whether you want to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ or not. It is up to you. But if you do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures, you're not saved. That's what the Scriptures tell us. We must believe that He's Lord and that He's risen from the dead. Now you ask people, what do you think about this resurrection? And I often do this just to find out where a person is. Let's say, oh, Professor so-and-so, I, I, I think he's a believer, but I'm not sure. I'll say, oh, I'll go find out. And I sit with him and I invite him to lunch and I say, okay, what do you think of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he's physically raised from the dead? They get all sorts of answers. And I said, well, you know, when we die, we just change frequency. And this was one of the scientists told me this. Another guy said, well, I don't believe in a physical resurrection. I believe in a spiritual resurrection. Okay, he says, he says physical resurrections aren't important. I said, oh, they're not? He says, oh, no. Physical resurrections happen all the time. I said, they happen all the time? He says, oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, people think they see somebody who's already died, and they think they see him, and then they turn on the light, and they blow it away, it's gone. It's just a ghost. Alright, let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and let's establish that we are speaking about a physical resurrection. This is the key, that there has been a resurrection. Remember, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And the Bible says that we must believe that He's Lord and be willing to confess that. And you think about this if you're really willing to confess that in a place where people don't believe likewise? Are you really willing to confess that? And then he says, he says that we must be willing to believe. We must believe that He's risen from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
So let's establish what he's saying here. He says, this is the word by which you are saved. It's not a matter of our opinion. This is what it says. We have to do justice to the text. And I deal with people all the time. They'll tell me things, and I'll say, show me in the Bible where it says that. These are Christians. I say, you have to do justice to the text. Show me where it says that. And they say, well, it says this. I say, okay, well, it says that, but it doesn't say what you were trying to say. Show me where it says it. We must do justice to the text. And it says, this is by which we are saved and by which we stand unless you believed in vain. So in other words, there is a way to believe in vanity, in, to be vain, to ha- ha- have vanity in our belief, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Look what He says. This is what I delivered to you. Of first importance, the most important thing is this, that He died, He was buried, and He raised from the dead. It's not just a matter of Jesus being a good teacher or being a nice guy or having great... Philosophy. It's a matter of him raising from the dead. That he died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. Well, how do we know it was a physical resurrection and not just a spiritual one? Verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Cephas is the other name for Peter. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve apostles. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And you say, well, well, I, I thought there was, there was, uh, there was only, only uh, 11 apostles because, because Judas had died. But remember, they chose Matthias. They chose Matthias. Matthias was the 12th. And you say, well, I thought the 12th was Paul. No, Paul was the 13th because he didn't appear to Paul till later. And the, t- the, the, the text tells us. And it says, And he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5, And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so, they pre- so, so we preached and so you believed. So look what he says. He says he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And the thing about hallucinations is they don't appear in concert. You don't have multiple people having the same hallucination. That doesn't happen. And so you have 500 people seeing him at once. And he says, most of them are still alive. You want to interview them? Go and interview them. This is very different than, than legends. Legends always say, you know, don't look too closely, because if you go there, uh, your firstborn will die. You know, they'll, they'll put all sorts of curses around it. And here he welcomes you to investigate it. And then he says in verse 12, 
Now, I, now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. There must be the physical resurrection of Christ. And if you don't believe it, that's up to you. You have that choice, but you're not saved. Your faith is in vain without that. And the world can try to explain it away. They say, well, how did he raise from the dead? I say, it's a miracle. It doesn't happen every day. It's a miracle. He raised from the dead. People saw him. People saw him dead. They saw him alive. He was raised from the dead. It was not just a spiritual thing. It was a very physical thing. And without that, our faith is in vain. And then he goes on in verse... In verse 17, and if Christ, in verse 17 of, of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. You see how critical it is that Christ has been raised? Without it, faith is worthless, we're still in our sins. Look over in, in Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Verse 36. And while they, were, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they, started, they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. They thought they were seeing a spirit, and he put that to rest by saying, This is not just a spirit. Come here. Touch me. And let me prove it to you. Give me something to eat. This is a physical resurrection. And this is why he says... He challenges his disciples. He says, who do the people say that I am? And they say, you're a good teacher, you're, you're one of the prophets or something. He says, no, but who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is our answer? I believe that you are Lord. And I believe that you've risen from the dead. Without the resurrection... There is no basis to our faith. It is vanity without the resurrection. That's where we stand. And as soon as, they, as Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then Jesus begins to open up new things to them. Turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. You see, from that time, Jesus began to open these things up to him. When they had the understanding that indeed he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when we have the understanding that he is Lord and he's risen physically from the dead and the Holy Spirit enters our hearts, then He begins to open up to us things that the world doesn't understand. 
you go to an unbeliever, you start sharing some things that excite you about the Scriptures. You say, look at this. They're like, uh, uh uh-huh. So? They don't see it. They don't see it. Because their heart has not yet been opened by God. There's something that happens when the Holy Spirit comes into the heart, when we have that revelation that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when we have that revelation that He has risen from the dead and He's entered our hearts, then He begins to open the Scriptures to us. He begins to teach us. How did Jesus teach them that He was going to suffer these many things? I think it's just like He he taught them, more specifically, if you look in, again, look back in Luke chapter uh, 24. Luke chapter 24, after he had risen. Luke chapter 24. Um, verse 18. Luke chapter 24, verse 18. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word, in the sight of God and in all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him into the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they, when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body. They came saying that he had, they had seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said. But, we did not see, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. You see what Jesus did? He went beginning with Moses and explaining through the writings of the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning Himself, the things that were written. What He did as He taught the disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer, He begins to explain to them in the context in which they can understand their Hebrew Scriptures. He begins to explain to them, look what the Scriptures say, look what Isaiah wrote about the suffering servant, how he would suffer. And He begins to explain it to them. And then Peter, in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 16, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, 
there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His glory. So it says, Peter took him aside and said, and rebuked him and said, Lord, that would never happen to you. So as he's describing to them what's going to happen to him, Peter tries to cover for him and says, there's no way that's going to happen to you. I will never let it happen to you. And Peter did try to defend the Lord. What chance did Peter stand of picking up a sword in Jesus' defense in the garden there when there were so many people that had come to arrest him? Hundreds had come to arrest him. Peter knew that he would probably die by that act. And Peter was willing to die for him. Peter was willing to give his life for Jesus to keep anything like this from happening. It was a sincere attitude toward Jesus of wanting to protect him. In the, uh, this is reported in, also in Mark chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 9 records the same event. And it says, Jesus stopped, turned around and looked back at his disciples and then turned back toward Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not, you're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, No way, Peter. You're standing in the way of God's interests. Let me give you what I see, the biggest standing in the way of God's interests in the kingdom of God. And that is Christian parents. And I'm not picking on your parents, I'm picking on you. Because one day you will be a parent. It is Christian parents are the biggest stumbling block to the ongoing of the gospel. Because I want my child to live right next door to me so that I can take care of their grandchildren and I can play grandpa to their grandchildren and have them grow up comfortably right next to me. I don't want them going on the mission field. It's dangerous out there. I want them right there. Without the encouragement to let them go wherever God would have them. If God wants them right next door to you, fine. But if God wants them somewhere else, good. Let them go. Because what you do is you kill off their Christian life. Because they become doctors and lawyers and get all excited about the riches of this world. Rather than ministering to the things of man. You say, well, doctors and lawyers can minister here. Well, that's true. If God has so called them to be ministering here. And that's the best place for them. But parents have to be open. Christian parents have to be open to allowing their kids to go anywhere that God takes them. And I pray over my kids' pictures every morning. I say, Lord, send them wherever you want to send them. May I never stand in your way. Wives, Christian wives, will stand in the way of their husband's ministries. I don't want them to do this. This is dangerous. Christians standing in the way of God. This is exactly what Peter did. He said, I will not let this happen to you. I can't stand the thought of them abusing you, Jesus. You're too good. You're too great. And Jesus looked back at his disciples, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus cries out, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Who, whoever is not willing to lay down his life shall lose it. 
Who stands in the way of Christian ministry more than family members? I don't know anybody who stands in the way. Family members stand in the way of Christian ministry more than Satan, from what I see. Because Satan is easily dealt with. Family members, they got all these feelings you don't want to hurt. I don't bother, it doesn't bother me to hurt Satan's feelings. Family members stand in the way because we have loved ones. Because we love them more than we love Jesus. Jesus said, if you love mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. And when you have your precious little child and you hold this little child, you're going to say, I would do anything for this child. I would die a hundred times for this child. That's what you're going to say when you're holding your baby. And you think about this. And you think about Jesus' words. If you love that child more than you love Jesus, you kill off the Christian life in that child. You straddle the Christian life in that child. Your prayer should be, Lord, whatever you have for this child, I yield him. I yield her to you. I yield this precious one to you. I'm not picking on your parents. Your parents are your parents. Their pastors can pick on them. I'm picking on you. Remember this. That the one you love, you must release them to ministry. There's a Christian mission going out and... And your wife wants to go on this thing, they'll think, oh, that's dangerous. You know, that's North Africa. She could die over there. Let her go. Let her go. She'll minister to the Lord unless you have a direct word from God that says, don't go. Let her go if that's on her heart. In fact, encourage her to go. She'll come back loving the Lord all the more. Let them go. Jesus takes this and he says, you are a stumbling block to me. You are like Satan to me, Peter. That's what he says. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine the Lord himself calling you Satan? I'm offended by that. And Jesus never apologized. Never. He said it. He said you are like Satan when you stand in the way of the ministry of the gospel. If you're not willing to lay down your life for me, you're not worthy of me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You want to save your life? You're going to lose it. The most content you will ever be is when you're giving your life out. You know when we think we get most depressed is when life is too easy. That's when we get depressed. You know, if war is at the door, we're not looking at ourselves and getting all depressed. We're just trying to survive. It's because we're too fat and happy that we have time to sit around and sit in psychiatrist's office all depressed. Oh, look at me. You know, I don't, I don't have all, all what I need. Well, what do you need? Well, I, got, you know, I, I just want more. Well, what do you want more of? Well, whatever I got, I want more of. We can't even, you know, put our finger on it. What's making us depressed? Because life is really too easy for us. You go out and you minister the gospel. And you touch lives and you give of yourself. I tell Shireen, Shireen, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. Because that, that woman gives her life so much for other people. Constantly giving her life to set everything so nice for other people. She is so content. So content in life. Because she's constantly pouring out her life for others. And Jesus well knew that. That if you try to keep something for your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you're giving out, you're going to keep it to life eternal. Mother Teresa was never in the psychiatrist's office saying, Oh, look at me. Nobody ever ministers to me. I mean, she's just constantly giving out. And the woman's life was full. 
Let your children give of their lives for others. Let them fly to China. Let them go places. People say, oh, it's dangerous over there. Remember one year, my daughter went to China on a short-term mission trip over, over Christmas break. And, one, and, and this was right around um, 9-11 time, and there was a lot of commotion in the world. And one guy said to me, how could you let your daughter go at this time? There's too much going on in the world. I talked to my brother-in-law, and he's, in the, you know, he, he's, he's Green Beret, and he agrees with me. It's very dangerous out there, blah, blah, blah. Well, his son... You know, my, my daughter's 100 pounds, and she goes off to China just fine. His son was like 250 pounds, goes to Montreal for spring break, gets mugged and beat up in Montreal. You, you never know. You know. So he comes back beat up. He was in the hospital, and my daughter's 100 pounds and comes beat up and back from China just fine. You never know. You try to, to, to protect people, you lose them. Where, at whatever the Lord would have, you release them. That's what Jesus says. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word, which calls us to believe that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Lord and You have risen from the dead. And the fact of Your resurrection is so clear throughout Scripture. So clear that Thomas stuck his hand right into the Lord's side. You have physically raised from the dead. And Father, I thank you that you call us to walk with Jesus and to lay down our lives for Him and to take our family members and offer them up to the Lord for in that they will be saved. And as your Scriptures say, That we are being persecuted all day long. We are as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Father, I thank You that even in the midst of persecution and in the midst of death, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Father, I pray that You would drill this home into these young lives that they would never hold back their lives or lives of the people they love from ministry. And that they would love you more than they love others. That they would love you more than they love their family members. And that they'd be willing to lay down their lives and offer up the lives of the ones they love for the love of Jesus. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.